Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Josh. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. And if we did have a fully proportional system, though, would you be worried about losing your local representative, like your local MP? Is that important for you? Not at all, because honestly, I find that my local MP is not, and no like disrespect to my local MP, uh, but I just find that the system right now, I'm not really represented through my local MP. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss an issue that has affected all democracies at one point or another, electoral reform. I'm sure everyone listening knows how truly important it is to get out and vote during election time, but today we are making the argument that what's important isn't if you vote, but how your vote is counted. Different electoral systems shape how votes are allocated and how members of parliament are elected. This can influence a wide variety of issues, such as the number of political parties that form government, the number of women or minority representation, and even the types of policies that a country chooses to adopt. The issue of electoral reform is especially important right now in Canada because our government is seeking to evaluate the way we vote in federal elections and will hear proposals for alternative systems. It's no secret that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised that the most recent election in 2015 would be the last election that operates under the the first-past-the-post system. So what does electoral reform entail? What are the pros and cons of the way we vote now? And why do other countries change their first-past-the-post system? Does Canada's electoral system really need to change? Today's podcast will address these issues and more. Seeing as this is first and foremost an issue of ensuring a voice for the people, we figured we'd go out of the studio and talk to some Canadians in the field. And by field, we mean downtown Ottawa. Chris Brodkin makes his Policy Talks debut later in the show asking Canadians their views on electoral reform. Let's start the discussion with an overview of Canada's current electoral system, which operates under an old majoritarian system called First Past the Post. Essentially, during a general election, The candidate in each riding that gets the most votes wins a seat in the House of Commons. Winner takes all. Across the country, the political party that gets the most seats generally forms the Government of Canada. This system is often praised for its simplicity and its tendency to produce stable, majoritarian governments. But it's not without its critics. A main criticism with First Past the Post is that it wastes a lot of votes. By wasted votes, I mean that a lot of votes cast for candidates do not go towards electing someone into Parliament. In fact, a candidate in a riding doesn't even need 50% of the votes to win the seat. So there are a ton of unused votes that don't go towards electing someone into Parliament. The wasted votes phenomenon is at the root of a lot of other complaints against first past the post. Many people feel forced to vote strategically and end up voting against the candidate they don't want rather than for the candidate they do. In a system where people tend to vote strategically, candidates get pushed out. In Canada, the Green Party is a classic example. Even though 3.4% of people that voted in the last election voted for the Green Party, the Green Party only gained one seat in the House of Commons, or 0.3% of the seats. On the other hand, if the Green Party were allocated the same proportion of seats as they won votes, they would have 11 seats. 
There are several other issues raised by critics of the first-past-the-post system compared with other electoral structures. Firstly, there tend to be fewer women and racial minorities being put forward as candidates and subsequently elected, because parties tend to favor a status quo approach for candidate selection. Looking at an array of electoral systems, there is a correlation in which ethnic and racial minorities across the world are far less likely to be represented in parliaments elected by first-past-the-post. The same goes for women as well. There's also the issue of voter apathy, where people feel that their vote doesn't make a difference and they choose not to vote in an election. Voter apathy is linked to the fact that votes are seen to have different values depending on which riding that you're voting in. Essentially, votes have different strategic value, and if you're in a riding with a, with a close race between candidates, your vote matters a lot more than a riding where one candidate is much more likely to win. These are just some of the problems encountered by first-past-the-post electoral system, and they mostly stem from the issues of wasted votes that come from the winner-takes-all voting structure. Once in power, it is in the interests of governments elected through first-past-the-post to maintain it, however flawed. Those flaws supported their election and often favor their re-election. The committee that was established to evaluate different options in the Canadian context is just warming up. Fortunately, they also want to hear from the public so we've decided to delve deeper into the topic. We've got an expert with us here today to help us out and maybe even answer some of the questions we've already collected. Rhea Laverne is a member of Fair Vote Canada's National Council. Fair Vote Canada is a nationwide grassroots civic education and electoral reform campaign in Canada. Real built his career in international development and cooperation. Now retired, he is working to promote proportional representation in Canada. Thank you for being with us here today, Riel, and we're very excited to have your perspective on our podcast. Oh, I'm really very pleased to be here as well. Welcome. So we thought we'd start out by hearing a bit of what people we talked to on the street had to say about electoral reform. How's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good. So my first question for you would be is, what do you like most about our system? Um, I'm not really a big fan of the system. Um, I've actually voted strategically for the last two elections the way that it is now is that you know for example um, most of the people strategically vote to vote against the person that they don't want in there so I find that the local MP uh, while you want to vote for the Prime Minister sometimes you don't want to vote for your local MP sometimes it's not proportional uh, to how much votes the person gets um, in some ways, I'd like there to be a yay or nay system. And the person who gets the most yes votes, uh, over 50% in the riding, would, you know, get the, uh, the, nom get the uh, title of MP for that area. Right now, Justin Trudeau has set up a parliamentary committee to look at electoral reform and to look at a different uh, options that could be put forward. Mm -hmm. So if you had one question for this committee, what would you like to ask them? <clears throat> well, I'm kind of, uh, I don't really believe very, very many politicians do things for the people anymore. <laughs> so my question would be if they're actually doing this to make things fair or to better their chances of getting elected. Well, yeah, just basically how could you get, you know, like an MP to represent uh, every, you know, the local constituent, uh, see, uh, if they didn't win that area right uh, make the change and make it quick because I think people are tired of the way that the um, elections are right now uh, I myself did not vote in the last um, election just because I know I sort of knew what the outcome 
what it would be. In his 2015 election campaign, now PM Justin Trudeau promised that if elected, he would work on electoral reform. So, Rial, can you tell us a little bit about this promise? Well, it was an important promise, to be sure. It doesn't take a large part of the liberal platform. There's four short bullets and something like a 67-page document. Um, but it is really far-reaching. And the very title of it is very far-reaching. The very title of it is, We Will Make Every Vote Count. It's something that's, that you can't do without bringing in proportional representation, which is a fairly big change to our current system. Um, and he talked about making 2015 the last first-past-the-post election. That's mm -hmm. a categorical promise. Uh, then he talks about forming an all-party committee, which has already been formed, so they are carrying out that promise. And then there's a little bit of um, carefulness, let's say, mm. <laughs> uh, where he talks about ranked ballots, proportional representation, mandatory voting, and online voting. Um, so, and ranked ballots is not proportional representation. I'll be talking about that a little bit. So that's where there's some equivocation. Um, the last promise is within 18 months to bring forward legislation. So again, a very strong, firm promise. Yeah. So why do you think uh, Canadians might have voted in part for electoral reform? Well, if you look at how citizens have moved towards electoral reform, either in Canada, provincially, or internationally, the reasons are always the same. It mm -hmm. always happens after a particularly unacceptable result under first-past-the-post. So what happened in Canada was that in 2011, the Conservatives were elected with a minority of the vote. They had 39.6% of the vote. They got 54% of the seats, which, by the way, is this are the same proportions mm -hmm. to a one decimal point as what the Liberals got in the 2015 election. Um, but what, what happened is the Liberals got hurt in that election. They had 19% of the vote. They got 11% of the seats. The Bloc Québécois, the Green Party also got hurt. What you might not know is the NDP actually did well mm -hmm. under first-past-the-post in 2011. They got two percentage points more than, than their share of the vote. But what happened is that um, not only were the Conservatives elected with the minority, but there was splitting, there was vote splitting between mm -hmm. the NDP, the Liberals, and the Green Party. And there were a lot of unhappy voters mm -hmm. when, when there was a majority government formed with only 40% of the vote. And then the Harper government proceeded to govern to their base basically, mm. leaving aside the 60% of people who had not voted for him. Fundamentally, that's the problem. So not only were voters unhappy with the, a lot of voters unhappy with the electoral result, but they continued to get unhappier and unhappier through the four years of the, of the Harper uh, regime. And, uh, of course, it, it's, it's been a, so people feel, felt disempowered, basically, is what happens. Um, there's nothing new about that. I mean, people have been dissatisfied for a long time. Uh, you talked about the issue of people wasting votes. A lot of people feel that their votes don't count. So there's a long-term dissatisfaction. But there's always got to be some trigger that makes people feel this is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And as we went in the run-up to the 2015 election, a lot of people felt there was a crisis in our democracy. And this was a part of it. Well, I think you can certainly see how, see how people would, might feel alienated by that system. We heard some interesting comments by Canadians about their concerns with both the current electoral system and the prospect of a new one. One comment that struck me particularly was the issue of self-interest in that 
politicians may opt to choose a new system that is in their party's interest rather than what's best for the country. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the dilemma that they're facing at this yeah. point. Well, I think party interests, invested interests, are the fundamental political conundrum that makes it so difficult to reform uh, any first-past-the-post system, whether it's, it's us or the UK or Australia, any of those countries, they seem to be stuck with first-past-the-post despite the disadvantages of, of that system. What happens is, and this is what's happening in this case, the Liberals are in third place. They, they see that the <coughs> system's hurting them. They're worried about their future. They promise real change, which is how it was put. Then they get elected with what we call a false majority government. They're benefiting from the system. And then they start thinking, well, is a reform actually in the, in the interests of our party in the long term? They always think they can, can keep, keep winning. But even more seriously than that, in a way, is that individual MPs that are elected are in danger of losing their seats. And to understand that, you have to appreciate that under our system, parties tend to win, not just globally, but they tend to win particular regions, whole regions, can be 100% for one party. It can be Western Canada with the Conservatives, uh, Victoria Island mm -hmm. for, yeah, I'm going to go to Victoria, to, to Atlantic Canada, but um, Vancouver Island for the NDP. Yes. And the Bloc has got its areas of, of Quebec province. And yeah, Atlantic Canada is the perfect example. 100% liberal MPs. Okay, so what happens now if you bring in proportional representation? They're not going to win 100% anymore. They're going to win 55%, assuming they had the same vote. Eliminate um, strategic voting, maybe they'll end up with 45%. So instead of 100% of the seats, you end up with 45% of the seats. How do you think those MPs feel about proportional representation? All right, what has happened every time that we've had an electoral reform movement in Canada is that once the party who called for it is elected, they lose their caucus. And the leader can continue to be in support. I, I would say René Lévesque continued to be faithful to his promise. I would say the same thing about Jean Charest in Quebec, probably, with uh, McGuinty here in, uh, in Ontario. But they lose their caucus. So then they tread carefully, and they're very careful, and they say, well, let's have a referendum. Mm. You know, and they don't work so hard so that the referendum will succeed. And it fails. What, if any, are some of the arguments for changing our current first-past-the-post system that have the most traction among a variety of political orientations? So we just touched on that a little bit, but uh, if you can expand a bit further. I would say there's one argument that's fundamental. Mm. Uh, I will point out that every major party in Canada has called for electoral reform at some time. That's I would, the exception might be social credit. I'm not so sure about that one. But you've got the Parti Québécois in Quebec. You've got the Liberal Party in PEI in Ontario and BC. Uh, the NDP forever, basically, certainly at the federal level. But, of course, when they take pro power provincially, they don't follow up. <laughs> Federally, they have the Green Party forever. They're, it's, you know, it's, it's their lifeblood. If we could get proportional representation, uh, they'd, be, they'd, be, they'd be winning way more seats. You know, as many as 30 seats. You said 11, but it could be as many as 30 because you wouldn't get strategic voting. It would change, really change the game. Um, so what, th what do those people argue when they are advocating? Because reform argued for it. The progressive conservatives argued for it. Pierre Trudeau argued for it. Okay? They always argue the same thing, that the current system is not fair to voters whose votes are wasted, and it's not fair to the smaller parties who aren't getting their share of the vote. And usually it's because they just finished going through an election where they didn't get their share of the vote, so they're peeved, right? Mm -hmm. 
So that's the basic argument. It's a question of fairness. And that question is so important because it goes to the heart of what it means to be a representative democracy. If you're in a system where over half of votes don't count in the sense of electing somebody, if you're in a system where if you're in a safe seat, your vote basically counts for nothing, but if you're in a swing riding, wow, your vote could change the history of the country. Do those votes count the same? No, they don't count the same. And therefore, it's, it's fundamental. If we live in a, uh, a representative democracy where voter equality does not exist, we have what you call a very serious democratic deficit. And there's a lot of other arguments you can talk about, the hyperpartisanship. Uh, you can talk about what we call policy lurch, which you go from a conservative to a liberal government, and the liberal government just starts undoing what the conservatives did. Well, the conservatives, when they were in power, spent most of their time in power undoing what the previous liberal government had done. It's a waste. So there's all kinds of arguments like that, but fundamentally it comes down to voter equality because that is fundamental to the nature of our democracy as a representative democracy. So how can the current government implement electoral reform while at the same time not appearing to put a system in that is just blatantly in their own self-interest? How do they appear to be somewhat neutral and just focus on what's best for the country? There's only one way, and I have to say that if it works, it'll probably be the first time in history that it actually works. So if this government is in a position to do something that is historically different and be really a beacon to the rest of the world about how re reform can take place. And the answer is they have to shut down partisan interests and they have to show political leadership based on principles and based on doing what is right for Canada. Um, and, and I think there's potential for them to actually do that. They, the liberal leadership has talked in those terms. The NDP and the Green Party have talked in those terms. Even the Conservatives talk in those terms. Are there any independent consultants or systems that the government is looking towards um, for a better guide for these proposed electoral reforms? There's a lot. Um, as, you, as you know, the um, Electoral Reform Committee has been created, um, and they've been holding hearings since uh, late June. I've listened to all of those. It's really fascinating. If you have any political scientists and your students in your audience, they might want to listen to a lot of these. You've got experts from all over the world that are talking about uh, proportional representation, first-past-the-post, different systems. A lot of it is on the pros and cons of different systems and how it manifests itself, what you can expect. It's really, really excellent material. In addition to that, you've got a lot of ordinary citizens. This is a citizen's issue. This is about how we, as citizens, relate to power, how we relate to the state. And therefore, what citizens think really is important. And the process that the government has put forward to organize town halls right across the country gives citizens an opportunity to get out there and be heard as citizens whose voice matters. This is not just about experts. So what do you think the government has done or can do to combat the pervasive idea of partisan self-interest that seems to be influencing a lot of the criticism of first-past-the-post? Well, I think these town halls that are being organized give an opportunity to organize discussions on a nonpartisan basis. And what I have heard is that people are making a really serious effort to get away from partisan interests and to be discussing what is good for Canadians. There's a little bit of fudging here and there. You can see it, the choice of wordings, the choice of questions, and so on. But by and large, I think it's having an effect. And what you're getting from there, from that, is an opportunity for hundreds of citizens to speak to their MPs 
and tell them what they want. And that is really what happened. The only one that what's been happening, the only one I've heard of that was disruptive uh, was one in BC with uh, John Aldag, which uh, was uh, invaded by some of these make simple count people and, and it wasn't a pretty scene. But aside from that, uh, what, I've, um, what I've seen is very uh, encouraging. So from what it sounds like, and I certainly believe as well, it's very important for citizens in these ridings to be engaged with their local MPs uh, about the process. But I think oftentimes it seems what might deter people from doing that is that they might not fully understand the pros and cons of the process or how it might be changed or the alternatives as well. So what do you think the government can better do to inform voters about this process and make sure that they feel like they can approach their NPs if they wish uh, in a way that might make meaningful change? Well, they've, uh, they've done some things. They have uh, put some material on the website, which produced by the produced by the library, parliamentary mm -hmm. library. Um, so people can access that kind of material. Um, personally, I think this material that Fair Vote Canada puts out is better. <laughs> So I would encourage people to visit the Fair Vote Canada website. Um, but I think there is, uh, there is an effort being made, uh, to be sure. Um, uh, one of the points that I think is important is that ordinary citizens have their own lives to, to live. And not every citizen is going to want to become a political science student or an electoral reform expert. Um, the way that most citizens will learn about electoral reform is by living the experience by going to the polls, filling out a ballot, finding out that, hey, this isn't so complicated, um, and then saying, hey, look at that, my vote counted for something. So you want to talk about public education? Do it. Let people learn by doing. That's your public education. There's no way to reach 30 million people and then have a referendum and have them vote on it. It's just not going to work. Well, it absolutely goes to what you were talking about earlier about empowerment and how that kind of underlies uh, a lot of this system and how people might interact with it. Um, can you give us a rough explanation of what a proportional representation system might look like in Canada? Yeah, and that's a really good question because looks like in Canada is fundamental. You know, most countries, there's a lot of proportional representation countries in, in the world. There's about 90. But almost all of them use something called list PR. And some of them have those lists are actually national lists. And you basically, you just vote for your favorite party. And then from the list, you determine who's actually in government. That wouldn't work in Canada for a lot of reasons, including our own democratic traditions. Um, so we in Fairboat Canada, we call for a couple of things. Um, the main thing is we're going to have to retain some form of local representation. That's fundamental. It's part of our tradition. People would just would not understand uh, a system that was just based on, on lists. And it has to be relatively simple. Um, but simple means having a relatively simple ballot. And having a simple ballot is not at all complicated. I'd like to point out that in the UK, S uh, voters are actually dealing with six different systems at the same time, you know, with municipal elections and electoral elections and all the rest of it. Um, and they do just fine. They just switch from one type of ballot to the other. There's not, it's not an issue. So I don't think these two issues, simplicity and local representation, are real issues in Canada because nobody is proposing something that wouldn't have local representation. So to answer your question, what kind of systems are being put forward that retain local representation. What you need to know, first of all, is that what makes our system our system is the single member riding, winner take all. That's what makes it a horse race. So you can't keep just single member riding. 
Okay, that's rule number one. You have to understand that. So, okay, so wh what can you do? Well, there are two formulas. One is the top-up formula. You keep your single-member ridings so that people can still vote for local representation, but you have fewer of them. You roll it up. You make the ridings a little bit bigger to make room for it, and you have top-up seats. And the top-up seats are used strictly to ensure proportionality. That's called mixed-member proportional, or MMP. It's as simple as that. Second option is you have multi-member riding. So that's like going to a pizza party and being able to order several kinds of pizza so that everybody has their own kind. All right? So in a multi-member riding, let's say you'd have a multi-member riding with five MPs, you might end up with uh, two conservatives, uh, one liberal, one NDP, and one green, for example. Right? And so everybody who voted for any of those parties is now happy. They're voted actually, their first choice, not their second choice, their first choice actually mattered actually made a difference. That's called STV, or it uh, could also use very small party lists, but in Canada we've been talking about STV, single transferable vote. Every voter gets one vote. You get to vote for your kind of pizza. Don't vote for three kinds of pizza, just one. Okay, so that's STV. Both of those systems can have some Little things people aren't so happy about. With MMP, people aren't so keen. Well, you know, you can have two kinds of MPs. My writing is going to be bigger. Uh, lists, I don't like lists so much. Or STV, well, is the Green Party going to get elected if you only have five? Maybe, you know, maybe you'd have to have ten, but then ten, the lists get too long and so on. So we've been working on um, a hybrid system. That would be a little bit more complicated. I, 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 I agree. It would be a little bit more complicated. But if you already understand MMP, and you already understand STV, you'll understand the hybrid. So what the hybrid does, it's called rural-urban proportional representation. And we put it forward. It's in, it's in our draft submission. That we're, it's already on our website. What it does is it, it says in rural areas, making ridings bigger is going to be a bit of an issue. So we've got to be careful about that. Maybe in some places we're going to have to keep single-member ridings. Okay, well, if you're going to do that, do rural people not to get have proportionality too, that's kind of a bummer, right? So what are you gonna do? So what we've been proposing is, what we are proposing is this. Let's have multi-member ridings in the cities, maybe using STV, it doesn't have to be STV, but STV might, you know, STV's got a lot of advantages. I could talk to you about that if we had a little bit of time. So let's say STV just for the, so, but they don't have to be that big, maybe three to five or six maybe. In rural areas, let's have them two, maybe one sometimes. And then let's throw on a small number of top-ups. You don't need as many top-ups anymore because you've already got multi-member ridings. So a small number of top-ups to even it all out, you end up with a highly proportional system and smaller multi-member ridings in the cities and smaller ridings. They could be multi-member, but they don't have to be in rural areas. That's what we're calling rural-urban proportional. Highly, highly flexible system. Uh, it's kind of cool. Once you get, uh, once you start to understand it, you say, "Well, maybe that's what we need in Canada." But it's relatively new, and, and uh, so I'm not so sure, you know, whether people will be able to deal with it. <laughs> it sounds really cool. Yeah, it's cool. So, does Fair Vote Canada have a preferred model of the types that you talked about? Well, I'll say two things about that. Um, first of all, we are against the alternative vote. The alternative vote means ranked ballots in single-member ridings. So. As soon as you talk about single-member ridings, I talked about this earlier, you already you cannot have proportional representation because you only have one type of pizza at your party, the party being a riding. Right? You only have one kind of pizza. You can't make everybody happy with only one. So you're still going to have dissatisfied voters. 
Um, and there are other issues. It will tend to concentrate power in two parties. Dislodging those parties is going to become virtually impossible. So they become entrenched parties. Getting new parties would be extremely difficult because you have to break through that. You have to get 50% of the vote before you get any seat anywhere in the country. Uh, the Greens would probably probably not find this works very well for them, although who knows? They might be a lot of people's second choice. So we are against AV, and if you listen to what they've been saying in the committee meetings, I, I haven't seen an expert there who says AV is the, the cat's meow. They might say, you know, it does this and that. It, it does avoid vote splitting at the riding level, but if you talk about the overall result at the level of parliament, that's where the problem comes in. Um, so, and, and people who defend the alternative vote, they defend it usually at the writing level. It's easy. You say, well, you know, it would eliminate vote splitting. Yeah, great. But it doesn't solve the problem at the level of parliament. You still get over-representation of one or two of, uh, of the parties. So that's the first thing. We are against AV. End of story. <laughs> we're not, we're not uh, equivocal about that. Now, what do we like? Well, you know, this rural-urban proportion is starting to attract some attention. Um, I'm not saying that's our favorite. We actually, you give us STV or MMP or rural-urban proportional or any proportional representation system, we're going to rally behind it. You know, in the past, people have been split between STV and MMP or something like that, and the referendum comes along and they say, well, I'm going to vote against it because I'm hoping for something better down the line. Well, they didn't get it, <laughs> right? And we're not making that mistake again. Whatever's put forward, if it's a reasonable proportional representation proposal, we're going to be rallying all of our troops behind that. All I will say is there does seem to be a fair bit of interest for this new model, and let's see what happens with that. It's a little ironic that they're strategically voting to avoid strategic voting. That is what happened, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to ask, we've talked about the pros, now let's just talk about the cons mm. of electoral reform in mm -hmm. Canada. So is there a potential for proportional representation systems to cause political stagnation around contentious issues? Uh, let's say, for example, we've seen how in the United States um, they've experienced growing stalemates um, between the Congress and the executive branch, which has made it harder to implement policies and has resorted to a number of executive orders. And so would this um, difficulty make its way into the Canadian Parliament if we were to change our system? Right. Well, I don't think the problem in the U.S. is due to proportional representation. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got bigger problems. <laughs> they've got big, big problems, uh, one of which is the fact that they have a bipolar party system. And, and if, you know, if you're a conservative, you have no choice but to vote for Donald Trump in the next election or vote for Democrats. Uh, that's the advantage of proportional representation is when you get in trouble, you have someone else to vote for. Um, now, the cons. I think that the strongest area of discussion about proportional representation versus first-past-the-post has to do with the ease of making decisions. There is no doubt that uh, coalition government finds it more difficult to make decisions. That is the way our system is constructed for really good reasons. It starts in the 13th century. Now, do I need to tell you that in the 13th century we had regal government, right, for the monarchies? And so what they were looking for was a system that could more or less do the same thing, that you could make decisions quickly and with authority. So you design a system like this, a majoritarian system, so that the majoritarian system can make decisions quickly and with authority. Would PR weaken that tradition? 
You bet it would. <laughs> it would weaken that tradition. That's the whole point. The whole point is to give every voter a greater voice than they currently have. The whole point is to make the system more democratic and to not have what some people have called an elected dictatorship. And we're supposed to take comfort in the fact that we elect a majority with less than a majority of the vote, but we can vote the bums out four years down the line. But in the meantime, we've got this extreme concentration of power. Do voters really want that? I don't think so. When you ask voters in the polls whether they want majority rule or coalitions, a lot of them are really comfortable with coalitions. They're really comfortable with minorities. So who wants majoritarian governments? Well, majoritarian governments want majoritarian governments. <laughs> majoritarian governments to be like it. And the elites like it because they can control the system. Uh, so, could you give us a bit can of... Can I make a little, one last point on Absolutely, this? Absolutely, yes, please <laughs> One last ahead. point on this. Is there any evidence that coalition governments produce less good policy? I don't have any I'm not sure. It's certainly food for thought. There isn't any. The evidence is that policymaking does... Well, I'm not even sure it takes longer, but I think it's fair to assume that it takes longer. It's harder to come to decisions, but they end up with better policy. Right? That's what the evidence points to. Even on really difficult issues like economic growth, fiscal management, the environment for sure, uh, greater equality for sure. So what you end up with is that when you bring various voices to the table and you, and you do it in public, in parliament, you have debate on these issues and you bring in ideas from sometimes from the, you know, from the fringe, as some people like to call it. Not all the ideas of the libertarians, for example, are bad ideas. They have some good ideas. I'll bet you Marxist-Leninists have good ideas as well. So if you give them a voice, they have a chance to influence the outcome. And once you've had an outcome that is part of that kind of consensus, it sticks. You don't have the same kind of policy lurch that we have in our current system. And you probably get better policy because you spent more time at it. Well, we've talked about the pros and cons of some of these systems, but if we were to, as a nation, uh, change the system that we use, how do you think this process might unfold? Well, the Liberals have stuck to their promise. They have created the Electoral Reform Committee, and they've actually done us one step further, because not only did they create the committee, but facing opposition from the media and from the opposition from the, in particular, the, the NDP and the, and the Green Party on the composition of that committee, they actually put forward a committee in which they gave up their own majority. In the original draft, 60% of the members were liberals. Now, it's less than 50%, plus the chair is a liberal. So they only have four liberals that are active in the debates, in the, in the asking questions and so on. The chair has to sit and, and stay out of it. Um, you got three conservatives, two NDP, and you have the Green, and you have the Bloc, right? So what this means, they will not be able to ram through AV, among other things. They will not be able to ram through something that only the Liberals favor. They will have to get support from at least the NDP and the Greens. Now, ideally, if they got support from the conservatives and the Bloc as well, and you had an all-party consensus... Well, praise be to the Lord. That would be <laughs> that would be really fantastic. So that's happened. 
the and we've had through July and August, um, we've had the um, consultations with experts, which have been fascinating. I talked to you about that. I would like to point out to your listeners that all of those discussions are available in video and word-for-word transcripts on the electoral reform site. So that's that's really worthwhile. Uh, some key dates. The round that, right now the town halls are taking place. I've been to a couple myself. Um, they are well attended for the most part, um, and, and they're well attended mainly by people who want reform, which I think is the way it ought to be. It's people who care who end up going, uh, and I would encourage your listeners to watch for them and to attend uh, if they possibly can. Um, the MPs will then do reports on the consultations, and those are due by October uh, 14th. There will also be a roadshow uh, by the committee to all of the capital cities in Canada and some non-capitals like Vancouver and uh, Montreal. Um, and there will be a roadshow by Minister Monsef and Parliamentary Secretary Mark Holland where they will try to reach people, like young people, who have lower turnout rates at the, in, in the elections, people that we might not otherwise hear. So they're looking for a way to do that. And uh, I was speaking to someone from PCO about that uh, last week. They were saying what they're planning to do, and I think it's brilliant, is they will invite people who are already engaged, people like us, but they will ask us to bring a friend, a neighbor, a relative, to bring people who are otherwise not engaged to make sure that it's, that it's representative when they do that. And I would encourage them to use some sort of questionnaire. I actually have a draft that I've shared with them uh, that where they could collect that information in a systematic way so you could hear, and then they could, you know, then they could control it. They have your control variables. They can control it so that it's a representative. They can create their own representative sample from that. So that, I think, would be very interesting. The committee then will uh, draft its report, hopefully come to a consensus, they will submit it to, par- to Parliament on December the 1st. That's their deadline. It's not a lot of time. Uh, hopefully they will succeed. Um, if they do, uh, according to Thomas Axworthy, who um, was one of the witnesses last week, and we know that he has connections, <laughs> um, he thinks that the cabinet will definitely, would, would surely go or treat very, very seriously the proposal of the committee, which means then it would be included in the legislation, and the draft legislation would go to the House on, uh, in May of 2017, meeting the 18-month target that was set by, by the government. So that's the process. Uh, lots of opportunities for citizens to get engaged one way or another. Um, they can attend the town halls, of course. They can talk to their MPs directly. They can write to their MPs. There's a place on, uh, online where they can submit... Um, they can answer a questionnaire, and individuals can also submit briefs. So there's a lot of ways to intervene. The questionnaire, I find, is a little fudgy in some places, so you have to watch for where they're fudging things. Um, but uh, I would certainly encourage a lot of people to fill that out. So I've just got one last question, and then we're going to take a quick break. Talking about citizen engagement, um, do you believe that the um, electoral reform should ultimately be decided by a national referendum? Uh, what would the benefits of a referendum be? And uh, if such a referendum were to take place, um, how could Canadians educate themselves on the issue of electoral reform? Well, the benefit's obvious. The benefit is that you, you get added legitimacy for the reform. That's one. There's another benefit that Scott Reed puts forward. Scott Reed is the um, Democratic reform critic on the conservative side. And he says, basically, it will help keep the liberals honest. They will not put forward something that they think citizens would not accept. So those are the advantages of a referendum. 
um, you have to consult the public and you need to do so in a representative way. So just consulting Fair Vote Canada isn't going to cut it because everybody knows what Fair Vote Canada thinks anyway, right? So there's no point. Uh, you want to consult other Canadians. But to consult Canadians, you want to consult them in a way where they have the opportunity to get informed. Um, it's just not going to happen that 30 million Canadians are going to do the research to really understand what electoral reform is all about. They have kids, they have jobs, they actually have lives, unlike geeks who spend their whole lives talking about electoral reform like me, right? <laughs> so how do you do it? And I think there is a way to do it. There's a better way than a referendum to do it. Um, we've done it before with the citizens' assemblies in B.C. and Ontario. They're known to have worked extremely well. And those were composed of ordinary citizens. They were not composed of experts. They were composed of ordinary citizens. And they were representative. They were meant to be a representative group of citizens. So that, to me, is the approach that we need. We need to bring together samples of Canadians, and I talked a little earlier about having questionnaires and bringing the friends and relatives and then constructing a sample out of that. That's an option. Um, a citizens' assembly would be an option, but it's a little bit late in the game to be doing that. But there's something else called deliberative polling, which is a, kind of an in-between, where you don't have people sitting for six months. You can do it over a weekend or something like that, just enough so that they can deliberate, they can become informed, then you ask them what they think. They don't have to come up with a system. They don't have to design the system. That can be left up to the experts. But you can get a sense of what representative Canadian citizens think. Now, how could we do it? I think we could do it at the same time as the legislation is tabled. Because when you table the legislation, you're coming up with something concrete that they can sink their teeth into. You can ask people if they like it. So you ask Parliament whether they like it in Parliament how they would amend it and ask citizens how they like it at the same time. But you don't do it through a referendum. You do it through this kind of deliberative process, so, which is representative. And it's representative not of politicians. That's the thing. And that's what the Conservatives are, are concerned about. They don't want politicians telling us what our electoral reform system. That's like writing your own job, you know, your own criteria for being hired. So it has to be citizens, but it doesn't have to be 30 million citizens. It has to be a representative sample. So that's my preference. A lot of us are really worried about a referendum because it's subject to abuse. And it can be reduced to demagoguery. It can be reduced to outright lies. We saw them in the Brexit referendum. You see them in every referendum. And it depends on 30 million voters. Well, we don't have 30 million voters, but 22 million or whatever we have, actually doing their homework. And there's no reason to expect that 22 million voters are going to want to do their homework to that extent. So, and frankly, I don't trust the people who are arguing for a referendum. Because when they argue for a ref referendum, they do it in a demagogical way. So if they can do that asking for a referendum, they can do the same thing to sink the results of the referendum. So it's not that I don't have any respect for my friends in the Conservative Party. I do. And it's not just Conservative Party people who are calling for a referendum. It's also the Conservative media. And I'm really suspicious about the conservative media because they're very resistant to change. Well, thank you very much, Riel. I think we certainly touched on a number of interesting points, and we will continue this after the break.
are listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Welcome back to Policy Talks. Before the break, we discussed uh, the pros and cons of the first past the post system and a bit more in detail on electoral reform. We're going to continue now in the second half of the podcast. So New Zealand in 1992 held a referendum that ditched the first past the post electoral system in favor of a mixed proportional system called mixed member proportional or MMP as we discussed earlier. So, can anything be learned from New Zealand's experience, and what are some of the pitfalls to drawing direct comparisons between countries like New Zealand when it comes to an alternative voting system? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, if there's one thing to learn from New Zealand, it's that it's the only country that's done that. (laughs) There are very, very few countries that have gone from first past the post to uh, form a proportional representation uh, successfully, and that's for the reasons we talked earlier. Uh, getting electoral reform from first past the post is extremely hard. Um, and even in New Zealand, you have to know that the two major parties, National and Labor, were actually opposed to reform. And what happened was essentially a voter revolt because they'd had this policy lurch phenomenon from national to labor, and policies were being changed left and right, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> and they were really peeved. Um, and uh, so basically what happened is voters went against the desires of the two major parties and voted in, um, in reform in that particular case. Uh, Scott Reed, who I mentioned earlier, calls, calls the uh, New Zealand case an accident <laughs> in, in that sense, which uh, to some extent it is. Uh, the question is then, short of a voter revolt, are we going to be able to get, and we're not going to get a voter revolt right now. We're in a honeymoon phase with liberals, right? So that's not going to do it. What can do it? The only thing that can do it is if if politicians deal on the basis of principle and, and the desire to do what is right for Canada. And and for that, you're going to need le- leadership from the Liberals. You're going to need the opposition parties playing a strong leadership role. I mean, you got Elizabeth May, you got Nathan Cullen in there, you've got Alex Boulidis. These are strong people uh, in the committee. They're, they are making very strong statements. They have to play that role. The, the Liberal members on the committee have to play a leadership role as well. The Conservatives and the Bloc have... have you know, mainly spent their time asking for a referendum, which in a way, though, has some value because it helps keep things honest. So there's a role for that. I'm not saying there's no role for it, but I hope that at some point they're going to start also working on the consensus that we need because if we have an all-party consensus, that's that's what we really need. That's the dream. That's the dream. dream. That's how we can move forward. Um, So we've been talking a lot about the political positives and negatives. And now I'd like, if possible, to shift gears and talk about the non-political or at least kind of indirectly political uh, ramifications of an electoral reform. So are there any potential downsides to changing an electoral system that could affect a country economically? It might, I suppose, in, in some cases where there were so many parties that politics became paralyzed. Um, in practice, Germany, which has proportional representation, has fewer parties than Canada. It's not ne- a foregone conclusion that you're going to have this kind of multiplication of parties. Having a, a few more parties might not be a bad thing, because when you go to form a coalition, you want to be able to pick and choose a little bit. Because if you can't, if you're stuck, and you have to get in bed with a party that is a little extreme, 
then that party gets more power than they really should have. But if you have the, the, the luxury of being able to choose, then you can form governments that you know you can live with. So those are good coalitions. Um, I do want to mention when we're talking about outcomes such as economic results or results in social equality or the environment, policy results basically is what we're after, there's a lot of comparative research on the topic. There's a plethora. And I would encourage your listeners to look at the literature review that Fair Vote Canada has done. We've tried to do it as a relatively academic literature review. I mean, it's pro-PR. <laughs> Can't get away from that. That's who we are, right? But, but we've tried to do it, and we've involved academics in the preparation of it. Uh, it's a very good uh, literature review as far as I'm concerned. It's available as Appendix 1 of our submission to the committee, and you can get it by going to our site, www.fairvote.ca, and click on the link for blog, news blogs, right at the top. There's a link, and that will take you to our submission and the 12 appendices that go. And you can choose whatever you want from there. But Appendix 1 is the literature review. And basically what it shows is that across the board, you've got two kinds of, of two categories of results. One is the quality of democracy. On the quality of democracy, hands down, uh, Lipkart has done research out of 19 indicators, PR countries score better in 19 of them and is virtually statistical sig statistically significant for everyone. For the other ones, the policy results, um, geez, I don't remember exact, the exact data there, but it might be 17 out of 19 or something like that, but the statistical significance is lower. So it might be only half of them are statistically significant, but nonetheless, PR doing better in 17 out of 19 indicators. And it includes how well you do on the environment. By a long shot, it includes uh, uh, doing better on issues of equality. It includes surprising things like doing better on fiscal responsibility. PR countries, they do collect more taxes, I have to say, but they do it responsibly. And they, in terms of fiscal responsibility, they do better than countries like, let's say, the U.S. or Ontario. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to give a couple of examples. Um, yeah. So, and of course, there's a change in the political culture. That's important too. The quality of of the political discourse changes. It becomes less partisan. It has to because they have to work in coalitions. But also, they tend to focus on the issues rather than and policy issues, long-term policy issues rather than wedge issues. That's really important. And we know that wedge issues are really big. The kneecap in the 2015. I mean, talk about ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. That became a big issue. In the, we weren't talking about electoral reform. We're talking about the kneecap. Does that make any sense? Doesn't make sense to me. We want to be careful not to overestimate the power of electoral reform. So are some of the problems of the first past the post best addressed by reforms to other aspects of our democratic system besides the electoral system? Yes. I think the short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the longer answer and the more interesting one is one that Thomas Axworthy gave at the last session on August 23rd, which is that if you change towards a proportional system, it's going to bring a lot more of the discourse into parliament, into the public eye, rather than in the back rooms of the caucus of the winning party, right? So you're going to have discussion across parties. So if we keep that hyper-partisan discourse, it's just not going to work. So you've got to change the political culture. It will change by itself. It'll have to. But, you know, maybe we can do some things to encourage it. And he, he mentioned a couple of things which I thought were particularly interesting, which was to strengthen the committee system. And he had a, a whack of suggestions about how to do that, which I can't repeat here for lack of time. 
um, and also more money for um, research by the various political parties. So those are some examples of complementary things. I mean, there are other things that aren't complementary in necessarily quite the same way. You know, they talk about compulsory voting, online voting, there's all kinds of reforms that you can make. But I, I like those ones because they're so complementary to PR. So the idea is if you want PR to work, then there are other things you're going to have to do as well. And I thought that was really well taken. So for our last question, I'm going to ask a little, for a little bit of speculation on your part. Um, what do you think are the chances that we're going to get an electoral reform passed and implemented? And do you want to venture a guess as to how the process will unfold? Well, I'll just say this. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I work on this issue full time, into the evening, basically every night, and for nothing. That's putting my money where my mouth is. And it's, I'm not the only one. There are people across the country who are doing this. So people do think that there's a chance that we're going to win this one. They also think the stakes are extremely high. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Certainly, federally, it's the first time that it goes this far. So it's really worth the effort. Um, and so that would be the last pitch that I would like to make to your listeners. Get involved. This is a chance. And it's not forever. We're not asking you for years to be working on this like some people have done. You know, we got people in Fairville, Canada been working on this for 15 years. I'm not one of those. I've been working on it for about two years. But for people like me who like results and they like to win, this is it. This is the time. This is the time to win, to play to win over the next few months, the next six months, the next three months, the next two months. The, the shorter the time span, the more important it is. So we need people to get involved. Talk to your MPs. Sign our Declaration of Voters' Rights. Join us. Uh, send money. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> uh, go to the town halls. Uh, write a brief. Uh, answer the questionnaire. There's a million things you can do. Yeah. Well, this is certainly the time to get involved. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I'd just like to thank you very much, Riel, for your perspectives on the topic today. Thank you. This is make or break time. This is our time. Yeah. yeah, certainly is crunch time for us. Let's do it. A quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Emily Vallet-Watt, Christopher Brodkin, Mark Haken, and Bridget Healy. And our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Josh. And I'm Nicole. This is Policy Talks.